Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you. So let's get to it. When I was a uh, kid, these are the types of verses that scared the living daylights out of me. <laughs> uh, I, uh, <clears throat> I can remember uh, a whole bunch of people always talking about the end of the world. Uh, usually it was older men sitting around and, and they were just sure that the Antichrist was on the scene and uh, they're just talking about, oh, it's the end of the world. And I remember as a kid thinking, please just stop talking about this. It's terrifying me. Uh, and then I got older and, and, and I found out that there was other prophecies. Like it's not just a Christian thing, but everybody tries to predict the end of the world. And so as a kid, uh, there was a big deal in 2012 where the world was supposed to end. And uh, my mom came home after me, and I was just sitting there sobbing in the living room. Uh, this is like 2008, and she's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, the world is going to end in 2012. Uh, because it's, it's, it's scary, uh, especially when you're younger. And then as you get older and you kind of see the world and its brokenness, you're like, oh, maybe it wouldn't be such a bad thing if this world passed away. Uh, but as we jump into Mark chapter 13, really, I think it's a, it's a huge mistake to view this as Jesus talking about the end of the world. And the reason uh, I think it's a huge mistake to talk about it as the end of the world is because Jesus says in verse 30 that Kim May just read, he says, truly, I tell you, this generation, what generation? That generation certainly will not pass away until all these things take place. How many of these things? All of them. That generation was 2000 years ago. That generation has long passed away. So what is Jesus talking about. And we're going to explore that together as we come into Mark chapter 13. And as we look at what it meant to that generation, we're actually then going to find out some things that it means for our generation. But I want to, I want you guys to be good Bible readers because these are the types of verses that people will get on the radio and use to sell you books that they'll get on Facebook and post things to try to scare you because fear can control you. And what I want you to understand is when Jesus is talking about these things, he's not talking about our generation. There are verses about the end of the age when Jesus comes back and he fully culminates everything and he makes everything the way it's supposed to be. In Revelation 21, it talks about the death of death, which sounds awesome to me, right? That, that every tear will be wiped away. That day is coming, but that day is not the one that's referenced here. And I'll just jump in. And if you guys think I'm wrong, uh, you can take it up with Jesus or tell me where you think I'm wrong. So we're just going to walk through it line by line like we do uh, every single week. Chapter 13, verse 1, it says, As he was going out of the temple, he being Jesus, remember he's just come in and he's knocked all the leaders out of the temple and he's taken their pulpit and he's taught to them. And as they're leaving the temple, probably being escorted out of the temple, as the temple guards are like, okay, we got to get this guy out of here. Him and his disciples are walking out. And it says, one of his disciples said to him, and I just know in this awkward moment it was Peter. It doesn't tell us it's Peter, but we've been this far in Mark. We know it's Peter who says this next line says, what teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. You're walking out of the temple that Jesus just said he's going to destroy. And Peter, I think, is like, man, this building is beautiful, isn't it? He's trying to make conversation. Verse 2, Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, look at this, this is important, verse 4, tell us when will these things happen, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? What are we talking about? 
What are they asking about? They're not asking about the end of the world, are they? They're asking about when the temple is going to be destroyed. They're asking, what are the signs that we're going to know that the temple is going to go down? Because you got to think in their mindsets, this is absolutely insane. The temple has been the place where the Jewish people come and interact with God. And now this Jesus guy is saying it's going to be gone and gone forever. Verse uh, 5, it says this. Jesus told them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will deceive many. And we know in like the the 20 to 30 years after Jesus' lifetime ministry, there was a whole bunch of civil unrest. Uh, The the Roman Empire was trying to control the Jewish people. There was all these different Jewish sects that believed different things about the temple. And there was a lot of messiahs that would raise up during this time saying that they were the ones. And over and over and over again, you know what would happen to these messiahs is that they would die. Uh, that there, there was a Messiah who would gain a lot of power and, and begin to kind of fight back against the Roman Empire. And then Nero would take them and, and they would chain them up and they would kill them publicly to show the world that, no, it's not the kingdom of God, of Yahweh. It's the kingdom of Rome. Come at the Caesar and see what happens. So we know that many people came up and they were trying to pull the Christian community away from following Jesus. Verse six, it says, many will come in my name saying, I am he and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of the birth pains. The beginning of the birth pains. Birth pains. What happens when something is born? Well, there's the pain of the mother. uh, And for me as a father, I'm going to pass out, I know. Uh, I'm hoping my sister-in-law is in the room with us because otherwise Taylor's going to be alone. Uh, but for the mother, there's a pain, but as any mother will tell you, there's a great joy that comes after. Well, what is being born right now? It's the kingdom of Jesus. It's a brand new thing, being born out. And what I find really interesting about the verses I just read is these verses have almost always been used as a way to kind of scare people about the end of the world. That when you hear wars and rumors of wars or famines and earthquakes and all these things. And it's ironic on two levels because level number one is Jesus is not talking about the end of the world at all. And number two, what does Jesus say even about the temple time? Do not be alarmed. And what do we do? We apply it to the end of the world and we get alarmed. We do the exact opposite of what Jesus says to do. Verse nine, but you be on guard. They will hand you over, hand you over, hand you over. Who's the you? He's talking to the disciples. So uh, I don't know about you guys, but I've never been handed over to local courts. I'm not saying it won't happen. I'm not saying it doesn't happen in some places in the world where people believe in Jesus and they're persecuted. But as a Christian in this country, I have it pretty good, to be honest with you. Like I'm standing up here, I'm not breaking any laws, and I'm not even worried about breaking any laws. But in these times, you got to think of how crazy it would have been. The Christian community would have been not really a whole lot larger than the size of this room as Jesus is talking to them. And he's telling them, you're going to be handed over to the most powerful courts in the entire world, and you're going to survive it. Just think about how crazy this had to sound to the disciples. Put yourself in their shoes. It says, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And by the way, all that Jesus is saying here came true within 30 years. The very disciples that he is talking to, Peter, James, John, Andrew, they will all stand before a Roman Caesar and have to talk about their faith because it's making such an impact in the world. And they will all be actually flogged and then eventually killed for their faith. Verse 11, 
So when they arrest you, oh, sorry, verse 10, and it will is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say, but say whatever is given to you at the time, for it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. By the way, this doesn't apply to preachers. I've tried it. It doesn't work. Uh, you got to kind of plan what you're going to say most of the time. But when you're standing before local courts, uh, the Holy Spirit will speak for you. And to be honest, we've all kind of experienced this. If you've been a Christian for very long, you're with somebody and you're saying things and you're like, well, I didn't I don't know what I just said. How did that happen? Uh, It's the Holy Spirit giving us the words we need in our times of need. Verse 12, it says, brother will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And we can't fully even understand that. Uh, We can kind of understand like our our siblings or our parents getting mad at us because we're choosing a different life than maybe they would want us to choose uh, or maybe like a toxic relationship with parents. This is so beyond that. This is literally people are killing each other all the time. Once you think like a third world country where it goes between the government ruling and like a guerrilla warfare type people who come over and overthrow the government. and It's going back and forth. And you can't just say that you don't choose either side because if you do, both sides will kill you. And if your parents are on one side and you're on the other side, it's not simply we're not going to have Thanksgiving together. It's like you can't be alive because I have to show my allegiance so that I don't get killed. That's kind of what's going on in Jesus's time. I'm just talking about here. Verse 14. This is kind of a uh, scary verse. I feel like there should be like ominous music behind this next one. Verse 14, it says, When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be. And then he puts in parentheses, Let the reader understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Okay, what's, go- what's going on there? Uh, first off, the, the let the reader understand part is not talking to you and I because we're like, let the reader understand. Okay, I don't understand. Uh, it was actually for the original people reading this. Because as Mark would have been uh, writing this and trying to get it out to the local churches, they didn't want the, the, the Roman officials to be able to read this and know what it was talking about. Because if it did, then they would all be killed and all of Mark's scrolls would be burnt. Uh, so what they had to do is like talking kind of code. And it's, he's relying a lot on all Jewish Old Testament scripture so that only a Jew would know what exactly Mark is talking about. And he's talking about a verse in Daniel uh, where it talks about one day there will be something uh, that is an abomination to the Lord that is actually in the temple of the Lord. And what's really interesting is, again, Jesus' prophecy comes true. So the temple is actually destroyed uh, by Titus in A.D. 70. And right before that, what what they did is they would actually put Roman uh, Caesars, their statues, in the temple, in the Jewish worship area. So that the place that was only supposed to be for the worship of Yahweh became the place of worship for the Roman Empire as well. And then, as we keep on going, verse 15, A man on the housetop must not come down or in to get anything out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Because when you're pregnant and you're nursing, you can't move very fast. And Jesus is saying when it all goes down, you're going to want to be able to run. Because it's going to be that bad. And by the way, it was. And they came in, they burnt everything. They destroyed homes. They killed thousands of people to try to maintain order in the, in the whole entire area. I mean, we can't even imagine what it would have been like. Verse uh, 18, pray it won't happen in winter, for those will be the days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now, and look at this, and never will be again, and never will be again. And yet, what do I hear over and over and over? Here comes the signs, and then they'll quote this text, 
And it makes me so angry because Jesus says, never will be again. And you know why they do that? Because fear sells. You know why our news media loves to tell you the bad story over the good story? Because you don't care about the good story. You do not care. I do not care about the the guy who helped the old lady across the street. I want to talk about the guy who pushed the old lady down. That's what gets me to look at the news. That's just the way my broken heart is. And you guys can look at me polishing your halos, but I know the same is true for each and every one of you. Bad news sells. Fear sells. Fear sells in the Christian community. I could write a book about the goodness of Jesus and sell 10 copies. I could write a book about me knowing when the end of the world is and all of a sudden I'd sell a million copies. You know why? Because we we want to know about those things we're uncertain of. These things will never be again. Verse 20. If the Lord had not, past tense, cut those days short, no one would be saved. But he cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. And he did, didn't he, friends? Isn't it amazing when you think about the Christian faith? Just this tiny little cult that is being persecuted beyond belief by Nero, the most powerful man in the world. In fact, Uh, He hated Christians so much that he would get Christians, he would tie them to a pole alive, and he would light them on fire to light up his courtyard. People tell me, man, these are the worst days we've ever seen. No, they're not. (laughs) No, I I, I know people might give you a hard time. People might do things you disagree with. But there's nobody coming to light you alive on fire to light up their courtyard. And yet from that moment to where we are today, look how big the kingdom of Jesus Christ is. Now, of course, there's distortions and there's things that have kind of went wrong in the kingdom and there's, there's all sorts of things. But, but just overall, as you look at the kingdom of God, look how powerful it is. The fact that we in the United States of America, a country that these people didn't even know existed, are worshiping Jesus this morning is a true testament to the fact that Jesus cut those days short right when they were supposed to be cut short. And his kingdom does indeed reign the way it is supposed to reign. And as we keep going, verse 21 it says, then if anyone tells you, he goes back to what he's already told us. See, here's the Messiah. See there. Do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch. And that's really where it gets super specific for us. I'm going to come back to that, that word watch. And you must watch. I have told you everything in advance. And he did, didn't he? This should build our faith, friends, that Jesus made a prophecy and within 30 years it came true. Like an an outlandish prophecy at that. Like who would come and destroy the Jewish temple? And who would think 2,000 years later that it would have never been rebuilt? And yet what Jesus says is true even to this day. It blows my mind. You guys don't look like your mind is blown. That's okay. Verse 22. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch. I've told you everything in advance. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So that talk about the the sun and the the moon and and the lights is actually uh, Old Testament language for uh, the other realm. So there's the physical realm that we see and then the Bible would say that there's a spiritual realm, that there's a whole other thing going on that we can't see. And a lot of what goes on and what we can't see has an effect on what we can see. That there's evil spirits and there's good spirits. There's God and there's Satan. And there's this whole other world that if we saw it, it would probably blow our minds. There's a reason God doesn't let us see that realm because it'd probably be terrifying. Uh, and what Paul is, or not Paul, John Mark is saying here, what G, he's quoting Jesus. Jesus is saying is that all of that is about to change. 
The, the prominent thinking in Jesus' day uh, of the Jewish leaders was that uh, we shouldn't mess with the spiritual realm. That God had it set up the way it was supposed to be. Evil, balanced, good. And, and we didn't want to enter into that realm and mess with things. And Jesus here is saying, no, we need to completely or, turn the, all the things over. Everything's about to change completely. And then he says, then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now, this is the part where you're like, okay, I thought Jesus said all this was going to happen. All right, I didn't see him coming back in clouds. I haven't seen his angels come and gather his elect from the four winds, whatever that means. So what's going on? Is Jesus wrong? And there are people who have said Jesus is wrong. And I would just say those people are wrong. Because Daniel chapter 7 is what Jesus is quoting, and it's not actually about Jesus coming back for the second coming. It's about Jesus coming before the throne of Jesus. Look at uh, Daniel chapter 7 if you have a Bible around you. If you don't, you can just trust me. Verse, uh, we'll start in verse 12. It says, as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was removed. This is Old Testament before Jesus. But an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. And here we go, verse 13. I continued watching in the night visions and suddenly one like a son of man. You know what Jesus' most favorite thing to call himself in the Gospel of Mark? Son of man. Was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached, what did he approach? The ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. What does Jesus say at the end of this text? He says, my words will not pass away. This is about Jesus coming before God and taking his seat at the right hand of God on the throne. This is, this is where it says Jesus is interceding on our behalf, which is crazy. Jesus is praying for you right now <laughs> at the right hand of the God, the God, the father. And he says he's waiting to make his enemies his footstool, which is just like the most awesome verse in the Bible, I think, right? You're going to be my footstool. So this verse is talking not about Jesus coming back. It's talking about him taking his seat beside God. Now, verse 28, it says, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branches become tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And the fig tree is a representation. It has been throughout the Gospel of Mark of the temple. And Jesus is saying once the temple starts to, to blossom, that's when you'll know. That's your, your one sign that things are about to go down. And that's exactly what happened. We can look back thousands of years ago and see that to be true. Verse 32. We should all listen to this. This is talking about the temple, but it's even more true about the second coming of Jesus. So everybody pay attention really closely. If this is something you're interested in. Now, concerning that day or hour, no one knows. Who knows? No one, no one knows. So quit buying the books. <laughs> Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Did you see that? Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son. Earthly Jesus didn't know when the temple was going to be destroyed or the world was going to end. You don't know and you can't figure it out. I don't care how many charts you put on your wall or how many Bible prophecies you read. You're not going to figure it out. So what do we do, Jesus? Verse 33. Watch. Be alert. For you don't know when the time is coming. And that word time is really important for us. In the Greek language, there's two ways you could say time. There's the word chronos and there's the word kalios. 
uh, or sorry, karyos. And karyos and, and chronos are very different. Chronos is what we think of time. It means it's on the calendar. It's going to happen. It's, we usually use the word chronological talking about the past because it's already done. Uh, karyos, on the other hand, though, is the type of time that hasn't yet happened. It's more of a vision. It's more of a, this is what we, we are working towards having done. And this is the kind Jesus mentions. So the, the best example of the difference between the two I can give us in our day and age is probably with like a presidential election. So we know in four years, give or take, uh, we're going to be inaugurating a president. Everybody agrees on it. I don't care, Republican, Democrat, Independent. We all agree that we're going to inaugurate a president. Uh, that is chronos. It is going to happen in time. But Karios would say that there are 14, 15, probably 30 right now different visions of who that president is going to be. There's a lot of he's and she's who think they are going to be president in four years. And they believe it. In fact, if you ask them as we get closer and closer to the election, they'll begin to talk like it's a sure thing. Isn't that funny how we get closer to the election of a presidency and both sides and the independents, everybody's like, yeah, when I am president, this is what I am going to do. It's, it's like a sure thing. But we know that it's not a sure thing. It is a karyos. It's a vision that they see. Now, chronos, you don't have to do anything. It just happens. Karyos, you have to do stuff, right? Like you have to go out and begin to fundraise. You have to rally up the votes. You have to do the work or it will not happen. And this happens in every area of our life. And see, when we begin to think about the second coming of Jesus and the end times in this way instead of the chronos way, it does something in us. It changes us to be a people of action. So when I think of, of the end times coming chronologically, it, it, it can lead me, it can lead me to set back and go, you know what, I'm just going to wait for God to fix this mess. Right? Like it's just a sign of the end times, so I just need to try to figure out what's going on, and then I'm just going to wait and God can come fix everything. But when I see life as a vision for what Jesus would have, a vision for his kingdom, and I begin to live to make that happen, I begin to realize God wants to work in this world and his plan A is me and there is no plan B. Like he sent his church with his Holy Spirit to go and put this plan forth, then I've got to go. See, see the difference is if, if I'm a Kronos type of guy and there's a famine and there's an earthquake and there's a hurricane and there's a, there's a rash of natural disaster, I'm going to sit there and go, this is probably the end of the world. It's coming soon. And I'm going to drink coffee with my buddies at the quick stop and talk about the end of the world. But if I'm a Karyos type of guy, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get in my truck and I'm going to drive down to wherever the hurricane is and I'm going to help people because that's what would happen in the kingdom of Jesus. I'm going to realize that there are differing ways people view the world. There's different karyos for how the world should end. There's people who believe technology is our savior. And so they're pouring their money into technology and they're thinking this is what's going to save us. There are people who are individualistic who say there is no saving all of us. I've got to save myself. And so everything I do is working towards the end of saving myself. But as a Jesus follower, I believe the end, that the actual chronos end, is Jesus is going to come back and he's going to install his kingdom fully on this earth and everything's going to be the way it ought to be. And i got to start working towards that now through the power of the Holy Spirit. I can be a reformer right now. And you see, if we believe this way, it changes everything in our life. Because if, if, I, if I was looking for the vision of the end time, how would I treat my wife? Well, in the end, I know my marriage is a representation of the way Jesus loves the church. Does my marriage show the way Jesus will love the church at the end time? Ooh, that's a pretty big one, guys. Or, or this very week, uh, I lost my grandfather. As many of you know, you might not know. Uh, and our family has experienced karyos from some of you. Because what would Jesus do in his kingdom if one of his children was hurting? He would be there to comfort his children. You guys have been there to comfort us. You've taken care of us in a time of need. That's karyos. 
See, in every area of our life, the way we raise our children, the meals we eat, what would Jesus do around the meal table? You think he would just scarf down McDonald's all the time? Looking at his phone, never making eye contact? No, at the end, you know what we're going to do? We're going to have a feast together. And I personally believe there's going to be ribeye. I'm sorry for you vegetarians. Just tastes too good to not be there. We're going to have baked potato. It's going to be delicious. We're going to have good wine. Nobody's going to struggle with drinking. There's not going to be addiction. We're just going to enjoy the gifts that God would have for us. And so right now, how can we bring carriers? Well, you know what we can do is we can, we can pull up a table. We can pull out the grill. We can cook some good steak and some good baked potatoes. Invite people over and have good conversation with them. Put our phone in the backseat of the car and don't bring it in the house. See, this changes everything if we begin to live this way. And this is what I think Jesus is telling them. He's saying, look, you guys, I can't tell you when the temple is going to be destroyed, but I can tell you, you need to live towards this vision now. Like we can't wait. We've got to do it now. And likewise, Jesus could come back before I finish this sermon. That'd be awesome. I'd be super pumped about it. Or it could be 20 million years from now. And for me to sit around trying to predict it is pointless. But you know what I can do is I can begin to work towards the vision he has set for me. And the vision he set for us as the church. Verse 34. uh, It says, It is like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, and gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether... In the evening or at midnight or at the crowing of the rooster or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes, suddenly he might find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about uh, the second coming of Christ, and he talks about how it is a great motivator in the Christian life. Uh, The fact that we can't predict or know when Jesus is coming back uh, should keep us kind of on alert, should keep us moving forward, because we wouldn't want to be asleep when Jesus came back, Uh, not uh, literally, but figuratively, asleep at the wheel, doing things we shouldn't be doing or, or working towards things that Jesus would not want us to be working towards. He said it, it's a lot like how an 80-year-old man should think about death. Uh, so an 80-year-old man should not think about death all the time, but he's pretty foolish if he doesn't think about death at all. In other words, like if an 80-year-old man doesn't work on his will or think about what's going to happen for his family when he dies, he's kind of being foolish because death could happen any moment. But an 80-year-old man should also not sit in his chair and just think, well, I'm about to die. Because that's not really living. And in the same way as the resurrection of Jesus, there's some people who would just say, I'm just going to kind of coast along here because Jesus is going to come back. I just know he is. And on the other hand, there's people who never think about the coming of Jesus. They never contemplate that Jesus could come back at any moment. And would I be doing what I want to be doing when Jesus comes back in this moment? No, probably not. For a lot of my life, if I'm being honest with you guys, there's been moments where it's I was not alert. I was focusing on myself. Jesus could come back at any moment. Then we move into uh, chapter 14. Uh, We're covering a lot of ground today because next week is Easter. And to be honest with you, my preaching schedule said I have to get this far. So we're going to get this far. Uh, And uh, you should bring your friends next week. I'm really excited about it. We're going to finish our series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, But chapter 14, the beginning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 25 pretty quickly. Uh, It gives us great encouragement for living this type of life. Chapter 14, verse 1, it says, It was two days before the Passover and the festival of the unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. So the Jewish people every year would gather for a party. It was a huge festival where everybody from all around would come in. They'd walk on the, ride their donkeys, come in, 
to Jerusalem, and then they would celebrate the Passover, which was a remembrance of what God had done thousands of years before when he freed the uh, Israelites from Egyptian slavery. Uh, God's wrath was coming over Egypt, and the Israelites were to slaughter an innocent lamb and put the blood on the doorpost. And when the angel of the Lord saw the blood, he would pass over the house of the Israelite people uh, so the Israelite people could escape. Uh, And so every year they would celebrate this. Now, don't miss the irony that Jesus is literally going to die on Passover. Verse 3, it says, While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii. This woman was very wealthy and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. But look at what Jesus does. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you. And you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. Jesus is very clear about the motivation for the way we live. So there are people who are doing wonderful things in this world, but their motivation is not Jesus. See, we are going to do things that don't make sense to the world. For instance, the world would say, why did you buy all these lights and all this equipment and a microphone and all this when you could have given that to the poor? And I would respond because our aim is not to help the poor. Our aim is to worship Jesus. And out of that, we help the poor. That's what we do. More than anybody else in the world, the Christian church helps the poor. But our goal, our motive behind that has to be Jesus. This lady gets that. And you know what she also gets? She gets that there's suffering involved in following Jesus. The disciples throughout the Gospel of Mark have ignored Jesus when he says, I'm going to die. You know what this woman just did? She prepared him for burial. By dumping this perfume on him, she is very aware that what Jesus says is about to go down. And she is not avoiding it, but she's going straight into it. Verse 8. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance. Look at this. For burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I think that's beautiful. Don't you guys? That that, we're reading this 2,000 years later. I think Peter, as he's talking to John Mark, and they're writing down the story, he's like, you got to mention this story. You got it. Jesus said this lady's name will be proclaimed wherever the gospel is preached. We've got to have this down in the record so that people everywhere can hear about what she did. And we see also here Jesus as an upside down king. See, because in the, in the Jewish tradition, you would be anointed by oil, but it was by a man. Here Jesus is being anointed by a woman, which in this culture gave no credence to women. And what house is he in? He's in the house of a leper. Those are the people you avoided. And yet the king of the world comes and he's anointed by a woman in the house of a leper. It's beautiful. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. That's one of the most sad verses in all of Scripture. The betrayal of Jesus came not from the outside, but from the inside. One of the twelve. Verse 11, and when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Just ask all of us in our hearts, what's our price? What, what, what would be our price of not following Jesus anymore? What would lead us to betray the kingdom of Christ? For Judas, it was some silver. And for us rich Americans, we have a very similar temptation. Verse 12, 
On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house. The teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So when we think of the Passover meal, we think of that picture in the upper room where they're all just kind of eating a meal, enjoying themselves. We think of this like super uh, religious experience. But we have to go back to the first Passover uh, where Jesus, the upper room where Jesus actually celebrated this with his disciples, and it wasn't peaceful at all. These guys are fugitives. They're trying to look for a secret place to hide so that Jesus is not arrested. This is a cramped room where they're, they're doing the Passover meal and they're hiding. Like Think, think of the, the Jewish people during the Holocaust where they would go up in attics and they would try to hide from the authorities. They probably were whispering, talking very quietly as they did this Passover meal together. All the while, Jesus knows he's hours away from his death. And he's even less than that away from being betrayed by a man that he's invested three and a half years in. As we continue, it says this. Oh, and then also the, the weird part about the guy carrying the, the jar of water. Uh, that was so that they would know uh, who it was. This was just kind of conspicuous enough because in this culture, it was the job of the women to carry the jar of water. So it would have been really weird to see a man. So nobody else would really notice that. But the disciples, because they're looking for it, go, oh, that's the guy I'm supposed to go follow. And then they would go find that guy. And here's a little fun side note in history. Uh, a lot of historians believe that uh, the, the room, that the upper room was actually in, uh, very possibly could have been John Mark, the guy who's writing this gospel. So as a, as a boy, he very well could have been the guy carrying the water that led the disciples to the upper room, which is just kind of amazing when you think about it. Verse 17, when evening came, he arrived with the 12. While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to one another, surely not I. He said to them, it is one of the 12 the one who's dipping bread in the bowl with me. In the same bowl I am, that's the guy who's going to betray me. Not the people on the outside who want to kill me, but the one on the inside. Verse 21, For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And then it says this, It would have been better for him if he had not been born. That's a scary verse, isn't it, friends? I don't know whatever you would sell out for. Uh, but Jesus says for Judas, it would have been better if he wasn't born. So I don't know, is it, is it money that you love more than Jesus? Is, is it fame? Is it control? I don't know what it is in your life. But Jesus says for that man, it is better that he was never born. Verse 22, as they were eating, he took the bread and blessed it, broke it and gave it to him and said, take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. He said to them, this is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. See, this is such a beautiful, beautiful text. Because what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I am with you in the suffering. He's just told the disciples in chapter 13, they are about to go through things they can't even comprehend. And yet as you participate in communion, as you participate in the eating of my body and the drinking of my blood, you need to know that I am with you every step of the way. In fact, I'm not even going to drink wine in the new kingdom until you're with me. I don't know about you, friends, but that gives Blake Farley a lot of confidence. 
Like if I, if I truly believe Jesus is walking with me through this life, I can live a Kairos type of life. I can, I can go for the vision that God has for me. And if I truly believe Jesus is walking through me, it makes suffering like I am this week a whole heck of a lot easier to know that Christ Jesus is not far away, but he's with me. And he knows what suffering is like because he's about to be betrayed by all of these men. He's about to hang naked on a cross and be humiliated in front of everybody, pouring out his blood for the forgiveness of my sins and everybody else's sins. So that whoever would trust in him could have a relationship with him. Could feel the love of the father through the way the father loves him. See, that's beautiful to me, friends. That when I eat of the bread, I am sharing with Jesus. When I drink of the wine or the grape juice, I am sharing in the covenant of Jesus Christ. And there's nothing that could break that covenant. It's a promise stronger than any promise on this earth. It doesn't matter whether famine or earthquakes, hurricanes, crazy people dead people, anything happens in my life, comes at me, I can't handle it because the covenant of Jesus is unbreakable. Friends, I pray that you believe that is true. And then as they close in verse 26, it says, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And that's what we're going to do now. If you would stand, I'm going to invite Molly and Briley up. Uh, We are going to sing and we're going to worship Jesus in our lives. So if you would stand, I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll sing. And Kim A. Sorry, I didn't mean to forget you. Father God, uh, thank you, uh, Lord, that you are not the author of confusion, but the author of peace. Uh, Lord, that we have uh, prophecy in the past to look back on and to know that you're faithful. We have your cross to look back on and know that you are faithful because you've done it once and you'll do it again. God, may we be the type of people who work towards the vision you have for the world. Let us not be people who just sit passively on the couch, but as Christ's followers and dwelt with the Holy Spirit, may we through your power go out and be the hands and feet of Christ. Loving the poor, helping the hurting, feeding the hungry, giving water to the thirsty. Lord, and ultimately doing it all, not for ourselves or for any other reason other than because we worship you and we love you. And you've done that and a hundred times more for us. Jesus, we love you. And uh, we pray these things in your name. And if you would take 20 seconds with your eyes closed and just say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? Father, give us the courage to obey all that you've commanded us. Speak to us. Help us hear you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Sing with me, friends.